Good morning. Uh, great that you're here at church today. I'm sorry we can't be. Um, we've had to unfortunately isolate for a week. And so uh, I hope that as you're gathered at church today, this message will be a blessing. Um, and we'll see how things pan out for our family this week. Um, but I trust that uh, this will be a, a chance where we can continue to worship the Lord together at church. And uh, I pray that this message for us all will be well received. As we do begin again, uh, chapter three of the story. This series takes us through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, as it sort of chronicles the Bible. And uh, the, the story is actually available as a, as a chronological Bible too, if you're not aware. And that allows opportunities for us through this series to pause at the major events of scripture comparing the upper story to the lower story, God's overall plan and the unfolding of that in our lives. Now, most of you will remember, of course, that it began with creation and we've taken a good life then, at the, the life of, a good look at the life of Abraham. And today we find ourselves in one of my favourite biblical stories. I love the story of Joseph. It occupies the last 10 or 12 chapters right at there at the end of the book of Genesis. But it also occupies an important place in the library of the Bible student because it allows us to see how God can take this person who, who begins in the pit, then goes to prison and then is promoted to the palace. I mean, how good is alliteration? It's one of the, you know, a preacher's love, most favoured tools. Every word here begins with the same letter. We have the prison, uh, the, the pit, the prison and the palace where he becomes the prime minister to become a picture of God's providence. If you want a few more Ps. Providence. What a great word, providence. It's a wonderful theme in scripture. You know, Max Licardo did a series um, many years ago from the story of Joseph and throughout that he had an overarching statement that he referred to in every message that he did on the life of Joseph. And it was this. He said, you'll get through this. It won't be painless. It won't be quick. But God will use this mess for good. In the meantime, don't be foolish or naive, but don't despair either. With God's help, you will get through this. How many of us need that reminder already? We're all going through something right now. No one gets through life unscathed. We all get beat up and bruised along the way. So understanding difficult seasons is essential to understanding God's word. I think that's a promise not just to the story of Joseph, but the story of scripture. But it certainly is a promise of the story of Joseph. Remember, the story of Joseph is a, is a story of, of abandonment. His brothers, he was, he was one of 12 sons of Jacob. His brothers didn't like his swagger. They didn't like his dreams, so, so they decided to throw him into a pit. Their original plan, of course, was to kill him, but their love for money was a feather heavier than their love for blood, and so they had a chance to sell him into slavery. 
And it's interesting to see that Jacob, he doesn't show up. The father here is a father missing in action. He should have been present. He should have been involved, but he doesn't show up. We don't know where he, he is, but he's absent. He doesn't show up. And so Joseph is carted off to Egypt, where he's placed on an auction block like a heifer and sold to the highest bidder, who happens to be a ruler by the name of Potiphar. Joseph, well, he lands on his feet. He works his way to the top and he becomes the chief servant to Potiphar. And that's when Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him and he repeatedly resists the temptation and, and he runs out the door. She reaches out and grabs his jacket or cloak or coat or tunic, whatever it is. And, and he says, you know, basically by his actions, his, his, he would rather not have his coat but still have his character. And so he takes off. She then takes that coat and goes to her husband Potiphar. And what does she say to him? She says, this guy needs to be put in jail for attempted rape. So Potiphar believes his wife over Joseph and Joseph ends up in jail. He makes good friends in jail. He made good impression as well on the warden and be, he becomes the convict in charge and is put over the whole prison. And that's when he interprets dreams for a couple of guys, one of whom's about to be released from, from prison going to Pharaoh and, and one who's, that one who's about to be released going to, to, to uh, promises Joseph that he'd put in a good word with Pharaoh for him. And so that guy's released from prison and Joseph, I'm, I'm sure, assumed he'd, he'd be out and be released himself in, in any day because, you know, his buddy was going to go put a good word in for him. How much time passes though? Two years. Two years pass. Plenty of time for Joseph to give up, to give in to get bitter, plenty of time for him to look up to the heavens and say, now is this how you treat Abraham's great grandson? Is this my reward for being honest? Is this what I get? Those words are not in scripture, but I'm, we can only assume that they are the words he asked because he's human like we are. I bet those words, though, have been in your heart and on your lips and in your thoughts. How do we factor in the values of life if God is in charge? If God knows what's going on, why did he let Joseph end up in prison? A few years ago, I was, uh, it was getting clear that my grandfather could no longer care for my nan. She had Alzheimer's and he just couldn't give her the care that she needed. It was in fact causing his health to decline as well and because he could, just couldn't get the rest he needed either. He always had to be on guard. You know, Pa would often go and play bowls on a Sunday afternoon in their village, which could, the bowls green could be seen from the kitchen window of their apartment. But he came back one day and she had this stove on trying to cook something, which just wasn't safe at all and uh, quite dangerous. And so he couldn't leave her alone at all. 
He told me how there were nights where she didn't even recognise him and he had to show her photos and talk about the nearly 70 years that they'd been married, talk about their children and their life together just so that she would let him into the bed to sleep. He would, of course, tell that story with a big grin and in good humour, of course, but I know it still hurt. You know, Nan was able to get a spot in an aged care home, which was a blessing as she could get the care that she needed and Pa would have time to rest. And it was so close to his home that he could easily visit and he spent every day he possibly could by her side, pretty much. And through all of that suffering and, you know, the loss of clear thought, the, the question is naturally raised, God, how does this all fit in? These kinds of questions, if you look into the Theology 101 textbook, would be found in a chapter called Divine Providence. Providence addresses the question, is God actually involved in creation? And Providence has really two sub-points. One of these is that he sustains everything. The promise of providence is God sustains everything. And if you ask the question, is God actually involved, sorry, actively involved in the outflow or the development of, or, or the flow of history, the response of divine providence is a firm yes. The response of deism, on the other hand, is no. Deism says that God, you know, wound the world up like a clock and then walked away. The response of pantheism is no. Pantheism says we're kind of all a part of God, but he's not actively involved. There's no personality to this God. The response of atheism obviously is no. I mean, the philosophy that dismisses the existence of God is going to dismiss the possibility of an active and loving and caring God. By contrast, the promise of scripture is divine providence. Provide. You see it in the word providence. God provides. God directs. He leads. He manages. Or to use the word of one New Testament writer from the book of Hebrews, God sustains. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 1, 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he'd provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus who was in the beginning involved in creation upon sacrifice of himself for the sins of the world, has not withdrawn himself, no. He is sustaining the world. This is a great word. This is the same word that appears when the four friends brought their paralytic friend to Jesus to be healed. They sustained him. That's not how it's translated, but it's the same word. They brought him, or in the story of the water that became wine, and the servants were told to take the wine to the master of the feast, they sustained it. It's the same word. And so here Jesus is described as the one who sustains. 
who carries, who transports, who doesn't let him fall, who doesn't let the wine spill. He's the one who gets something, someone from point A, something from point A to point B. He's the engineer of the train and the train is on the track and he's going to make sure that it reaches its intended destination. He's moving history down a timeline. History is not some cyclical event, some endless circle of history with no meaning. Quite the contrary. We're being moved, carried and sustained. Paul says in Colossians 1.17, He is before all things and in him all things hold together. In other words, were he to step back, this whole creation would collapse. His resignation would spell our evaporation. And Job said, if it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit, in a breath all humanity would perish together and mankind would return to dust. In chapter 34 he says those words. So God maintains everything. Because of him, water stays wet. Because of him, rocks stay firm. The laws of gravity and thermodynamics don't change from one week to the next. With his hand at the helm of creation, spring always follows winter and winter follows autumn. There is order in the universe. So that's verse 1 of the hymn of Providence. But verse 2 says, God not only sustains everything, look at this, he uses everything. God is carrying the cosmos forward to a desired objective. He's moving us down the track like a disciplined engineer, so everything is used by him to accomplish his purpose. Look at the words of the Apostle Paul from Ephesians 1, 11 to 12. He said, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. You could wear out a highlighter on that verse. The plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. All those words cooperate to say God is in charge and he works out everything. Here is that Greek word energeo, which we get the word energy from. So there's an energy God is the energizing force, not just behind the good things or the easy things or the obvious things, but he also uses the difficult things, the challenging things and the mysterious things. God is the one who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is the one who numbers sparrows and feeds the birds. God is the one in charge of everything, even the details of our lives. So if God is in charge, why is Joseph in prison? If God is in charge, why can't those suffering Alzheimer's be healed? If God is in charge, why did the brothers put Joseph in a pit? Please be careful here. There's nowhere in scripture that would suggest that God ordains or endorses evil. But there is this powerful picture of providence that says that God who uses everything 
can take even evil and recast it as something good. God is not sometimes sovereign. He's either always sovereign or never sovereign. So he's either sovereign over everything or he's sovereign over nothing. The story of Joseph gives us such a powerful portrayal of how God can take that which is evil and can use it to accomplish his upper story, to accomplish something good. Remember Joseph was in prison. His buddy finally remembered that he was supposed to put in a good word with Pharaoh. Do you remember what prompted that memory? Pharaoh did what? He had a dream. He had a dream. He came in one day with like a dream hangover. It bothered him. He said, somebody tell me what this dream means. And no one could. Finally, Joseph's buddy, he, he remembers Joseph, the dreamer, the dream interpreter, and said, I know a guy who's in prison. And as fast as you can say divine providence, Joseph went from prison to palace. They cleaned him up, got him smelling good, brought him into the presence of Pharaoh, heard the dream and said, I get it. It's like first grade math to me. We're heading for some tough times, seven years of good, but then there's going to be seven years of famine. Pharaoh, you'd be wise to prepare. Well, Pharaoh was wise and said, you're in charge now. And all of a sudden, the prisoner became the prime minister. And the story of Joseph is a story of Joseph navigating a nation through a crisis. It is not hyperbole to state that Joseph saved the entire world because other nations, neighbouring nations, the then known world, other known nations came asking for help. And because Egypt had stored up seven years in times of plenty, when the seven years went and then these others came, Guess who had the full silos? Guess who showed up needing help? The same brothers who had thrown Joseph into the pit. Did they recognise Joseph? No. Joseph, now speaking perfect Egyptian, now dressed as a ruler, probably head shaved, wearing some type of regal robe, they didn't recognise Joseph. But boy, he could see them. He saw them. He heard them and he was so overwhelmed with emotion he had to step away and weep and he had to wrestle with what his response was going to be now that their future was in his hands. And Joseph, rather than get bitter and rather than get even, did something wonderful, didn't he? He chose to filter their betrayal through the providence of God what they did was evil. He called it evil. He didn't downplay it. He didn't pretend. He didn't sugarcoat it. It was evil. But when he unveiled and revealed his identity to his brothers, he said this in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. In that passage, you see the twofold appearance of the word intend. You intended, but God intended. You came with your intent, but God took your intent and turned it into something else. This word intent comes from a Hebrew word, which means to weave. 
You came weaving a tapestry of hurt, of heartache and abandonment. You came with the intention of shedding my blood and destroying our family. You put me on the loom and you weave destruction into my life. But God, who is not sometimes sovereign, is always sovereign, who did not ordain your evil but can use your evil, God rewove it. He rewove it. He took the very fabric, the very threads that were intended to weave evil in my life and he rewove it into something good. You know, I'm really sorry that evil has come into your world. I've never met anyone who's escaped it entirely. You know, some of you seem like you've had more than your fair share. I know. It's like, it's, it's like in life your cards were dealt to you from the bottom of the deck. You always got the short stick or the short straw. Seems like life came weaving evil. The dad who promised to be a dad disappeared. Or the person who said I do on your wedding day said I don't every other day. Bad breaks just seem to follow you. People can be cruel, they can be harsh, they can be evil. But if the story of Joseph teaches us anything, it teaches us this. We can either clothe ourselves in our hurt or we can clothe ourselves in our hope. That's our choice. We can either cave into the pandemonium and pain, or we can stand firm on the peace and the promise of providence that there is divine providence in the world. It seems to me that wherever there is a life that has become a train wreck, you can trace it back to the belief that nobody's in charge. It seems to me that when you find a person whose life is not pain-free but is victorious in spite of pain, you can trace it back to the belief that there is a good God whose ways I don't always understand, but I'm going to trust his heart even when I cannot see his hand. That was the choice of a man by the name of Horatio. Horatio Spafford. The words of Horatio Spafford hang on the wall in a hotel in Jerusalem. The hotel is called the American Hotel. It was once called the American Hostel. For years it's served as a place for people from other countries to be ministered to when they come to Israel. Horatio Spafford and his wife moved to Israel in the mid-1870s. Tragedy first came into their lives in 1871 when the Chicago fire destroyed everything they owned. In 1873, Horatio's wife Anne took their four daughters on a trip from Chicago to London. Horatio stayed in Chicago. November 21st, 1873, Horatio received a telegram from his wife Anne that said simply, saved, all alone, what should I do? And then he received word that the ship that was carrying his family had collided with a British vessel and had sunk at sea. And all four of his daughters had died. Horatio immediately boarded a boat and set sail for England to retrieve his wife. Somewhere in the vicinity of where he, the mishap occurred, he wrote a poem that became a hymn. 
He and his wife eventually moved to Jerusalem and built the hostel that became the hotel. And where, were you to visit the, the hotel today, there's an unadorned frame that really you've, you've got to even know it's there to go and find it. And you'll see these lyrics in the pen of Horatio himself, the hymn that we love to sing, It Is Well. Maybe you know the lyrics. They read like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, O oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live, if Jordan above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine, for in death as in life, thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait, the sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds rolled back as the scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend, a song in the night, O my soul. It is well with my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. You know, we every day can choose to robe ourselves in hurt or robe ourselves in hope. That's our choice. No one gets through life pain free. No one gets through this journey unscathed. No one does. Our choice is how we respond. Let me tell you something. You'll get through this. You will. God gets his people through things. It's not easy and it's very seldom as quick as we'd hope. But God to, can take this mess and he can turn it into a message. He can take it and he can turn it into a testimony. What falls to you and to me is to keep that but God in the middle of our story. You intended evil, but God, he intended, he rewove it for good. In the meantime, don't do anything foolish. Don't be naive. In other words, don't try any shortcuts, any shortcuts or, or short solutions to difficult problems. You just avoid Potiphar's wife. You avoid bitterness. You avoid the temptation. You stay strong. You keep your eyes on God. And then in the end, you like Joseph, you stand strong and say, God, use this for good. We will all have those moments in our life like Joseph. Moments in the pit, those moments of betrayal and feeling like we've been unfairly by tr treated by people who, who sh we should feel safest around. 
moments in prison, those moments where we feel trapped and we feel forgotten and where we feel like we are paying the highest price for our conviction and character and no one is doing anything about it. Some of you might be in the middle of one of those moments right now, but know this, what was intended for evil, God has repurposed for good. Stand strong in those moments. Trust in his divine providence that he will use your hurt and pain and struggle for good. Let me pray. Lord, that's our prayer. It's a prayer that's going to require supernatural strength because some of the challenges we are facing, Father, are just beyond words. There are those among us in our families facing illness and long roads of recovery ahead. There are some in the middle of relationships that are cutting deep wounds and heartache. There are many suffering in so many ways right now. And so, Lord, we just need your help in these things. We cannot do it alone, but you can. And when we cannot trace your hand, we are going to choose to trust your heart. In Christ we pray. Amen. Well, I hope that this has been a blessing to you. And I trust that uh, you will enjoy singing together again now. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping we'll see you again next week. Blessings to you all.